Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. I've entitled the message this morning, Is Enoch Scripture? To which most Christians would reply, Who's Enoch? Jeff handed me a newsletter this morning, and the, the first sentence says, Until Lawrence published his English translation of First Enoch in 1821, hardly anyone had ever heard of the book of Enoch. And I would still say today, hardly anyone has heard of the book of Enoch. But let's face it, most Christians have never heard the word hermeneutics. Most Christians have no clue what happened in AD 70, that anything did happen in AD 70. You know, many know much. They don't know much about anything outside of the Bible. It's like, we got the Bible, the Bible's the inspired Word of God, we're not going outside, anything out there is bad, it's evil, and I've heard those things before. Well, that's not in there. Well, there's a lot of things outside the Bible, it's culture, that we have to understand to help understand the Scriptures better. So, today's message is going to be a little bit out of the ordinary, because I'm going to be talking about the book of Enoch, and discussing the fact, is it Scripture? Should have been in the canon? What place does it play in our role as Christians? Now, you might be thinking, why are we even talking about this book of Enoch? Well, we're talking about it because we come this morning in our study of Jude, verses 12 through 15. And these are controversial verses because verses 12 and 13, Jude uses allusions from the book of Enoch. The things in, uh, that I've highlighted here in yellow, these all come right from Enoch. You'll see them in Enoch. He says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast. They feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water. That comes from Enoch. Carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, double dead, uprooted, waves, wild waves of the sea, casting up their shame like foam, wandering stars from the black darkness has been reserved forever. And these are all metaphors used by Enoch, who wrote hundreds of years before Jude wrote this epistle. So Jude is relying Very heavily, we see, and we'll see this in the coming weeks, on the book of Enoch. And then after that, we get into verse 14 and 15, where Jude mentions Enoch, and then quotes directly from the book of Enoch. He says it was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied saying. So here is a prophecy of Enoch. This comes out of the book of Enoch, and... uh, He's giving a prophecy here. He says, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, what they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. He likes the word ungodly, but that comes from Jude again. I mean, from Enoch. That's where he's pulling this from. Now, I think it's notable that Jude's quotation from Enoch This is one of the chief reasons that the book of Jude was rejected from the canon for so many years. People didn't like that he quoted Enoch. And it wasn't until about the 4th century A.D. where Jude's letter had been fully accepted by the entire church as Scripture. But yet he quotes and relies on Enoch. Now, like most any subject today, we got Christians on both sides of the issue, okay? So today you got some Christians quoting the book of Enoch as if it were Scripture, or at least a true interpretation of Scripture, in order to prove their views. While others are dismissing it as obviously a fabricated legend without merit or worse, heresy. 
Now, believers, Bereans, as honest pursuers of truth, we should not discount any textual assessment because of a preconceived fear of where it will lead us. We've got to let the text say what it says and line up with it. We must follow the truth no matter where it leads us. And that's so important because too often we don't want to go in a certain direction because ah, some other people believe that. We don't like those people. They believe this. No, we just got to follow the text. So who is this Enoch that Jude quotes? Well, the ancient patriarch Enoch is one of the most mysterious characters in the Bible. We read about him in Genesis 5.19. It says, Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, the Enoch we're looking at, there's other Enochs in the Scripture. This is the son of Jared before the flood, whose son was Methuselah, who was the oldest man in the Bible. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Now notice that verse 22 says, After he begot Methuselah, then Enoch walked with God. So there seems to be a turn in his life after the birth of Methuselah. And I think this was a result of faith. And since faith always requires a word from God, you have to have something to rest on as far as faith, something to believe in. I think it confirms the idea that Enoch was given a revelation of the coming judgment of the flood which changed his life. The name Methuselah means, his death shall bring. And when Methuselah died, that's when the flood came. So I think with the son, Methuselah came a prophecy about a judgment Coming on earth. Now, notice that it says the days of Enoch were 365 years. If you're familiar with the text here in Scripture, that should strike you as that's a little bit strange because we got Adam living 930 years, we got Jared living 962 years, and Methuselah, who carries the record of 969. Now, whether these were literal or symbolic, Enoch was on the earth only a short time. Because the text says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 365 years, that's a short life at that time, and he's gone. But the text says he walked with God. This is a really significant phrase. It's also used of Noah in chapter 6. This phrase only occurs three times in the Tanakh. There's none in the New Testament. When God walks with men, it's really a rare thing. Now, the first occasion of this was in Genesis 3. It says, Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden. Adam was in that garden. Adam walked with God in the garden, in the temple garden, where Yahweh had brought him into fellowship with himself, into sacred space, and they had fellowship. Walking with God depicts a direct divine encounter, a direct divine relationship. So Enoch had a holy intimacy with the Creator that separated him from the world around him. He was a man who walked in fellowship with God. And the book of Hebrews says his life pleased God. Now, the writer omits the typical ending in most texts. It says that he lived so many years and he died. Suggesting that Enoch did not experience a normal death. Now, the language of being taken by God appears again in the description of Elijah's departure from earth in the fiery chariot. 
And the New Testament also asserts that Enoch did not die. In Hebrews 11.5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. Now I want you to hang on to that little phrase there. He was not found because God took him up. We're going to see something very similar to that in the book of Enoch. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Wow, that's an incredible testimony, folks. He was pleasing to God. Now, the Old Testament scholar Gordon Winham points out, the idea of was not cannot merely be a poetic way of saying died, because every other reference to the death of the men in the same genealogy is he died eight times. In contrast, Enoch is the only one with this peculiar wording, and he was not. Because this reflects the same wording used of Elijah's translation to heaven in a chariot of fire, thus avoiding death. So Enoch walked in fellowship with God. His life is pleasing to God, and God removed him from the earth without dying. Where did Enoch go? Did he go to heaven? I don't think so. Because Yeshua says in John 3.13, No one has ascended into heaven. But he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. See, prior to the completion of redemption, which was not complete until A.D. 70, it was not completed at the cross. The cross was the beginning of the period. It was the the issuing of the priest going into the temple until the priest came out of the temple, signifying forgiveness. Man did not have it. So at A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed. Man was forgiven Prior to that time, nobody went into heaven because redemption hadn't been paid for, atonement hadn't been made, man could not go into the presence of God. So where did he go? I don't know. I don't have a clue. If you know, please enlighten me, help me out. Because I don't know where he went. I mean, most people say he went to heaven, but I just don't see how that fits with John 3.13. And how can a man go to heaven before atonement was complete? can't be in the presence of God. So, I don't understand. It is mystery. There, there's a lot of mystery here around this. But, like I said, I'm sure somebody out there knows. So, fill me in, okay? Alright, Enoch is also mentioned in our text in Jude. That's how we got started on this. Where he is quoted as being a righteous man condemning the wicked of his generation. The biblical passage about Enoch point a picture of a, a righteous man. A man in holy communion with God during the time of great evil before the flood who prophesied judgment upon evildoers, and as a result of his God-pleasing faith, was taken by God before he could die. Like I said, I don't know where he was taken, but he was taken, all right? Taken somewhere. It's easy to see why Enoch captivated the imagination of ancient Jews, uh, writing extra-biblical literature during the Second Temple period. These Jews are like, they're captivated by this man. I mean, he he was a man who walked with God, he was a man whose life was pleasing to God, and he just was taken. He was he disappeared, so he became a, a pretty important figure. Now, let's talk about the book of Enoch. Much of this information that I'm going to share with you today comes from Brian Gadawa's book, When Giants Were Upon the Earth. Um, when we talk about the book of Enoch, one thing I want you to understand, there's actually three books of Enoch. All right, they are numbered, but they also have names of the language they were written in. So what we're going to focus on is First Enoch, or Ethiopian Enoch. This is the one that, you know, when someone talks about the book of Enoch, this is the one they're talking about. 
All right, this is primarily the the one you want to focus on. Second Enoch, Salvanic Enoch, and then we have Third Enoch, which is the Hebrew Enoch. They are all considered to be pseudepigrapha. Now, this is, I think this whole word gives us a bad thing. Pseudepigrapha comes from pseudo, false, and graphe, writings, false writings. They are false ascribed. In other words, these writings are said to be written by someone who they don't think they're really written by. It's just a very important name, so they stick their name on this writing, so then they people think, well, this has some, you know, if you put Joe Blow up there, the book of Joe Blow, who cares about that? They don't want to read it. They don't know this Joe Blow, so it doesn't matter. So you take an important figure's name, and you stick it on there, and it's like, okay, now, so are they trying to hide something? They, no, it's not, that's not the whole idea of it, all right? It's not, uh, I think Charlesworth gives us some insight when he says this. He says, rather than being spurious, the documents considered as belonging to the pseudepigrapha are works written in honor of and inspired by Old Testament heroes. So they're not trying to do something underhanded here where they're sticking a name on it so you'll think it's written by somebody it's not. That's not the idea. They're trying to give you a name of importance. All right? Lawrence Stuckenbrook complains that the modern notion of falseness in pseudepigrapha authorship is an acronym that fails to capture the action, the ancient acceptance of anonymous writers using ideal authorship as a means of uniting the ancient past with the present and future in sacred connection. He writes this, They presented themselves, in effect, as voices about the reader's remote past. Out of the remote past, this, in turn, would make it possible for the audience to participate imaginatively in the world in order to reimagine and gain perspective on the present. Charlesworth explains the pseudepigrapha includes a large body of manuscripts from various locations and authors that were composed around the period from 200 B.C. to around A.D. 200. They are either Jewish or Christian in origin. They are often attributed to ideal figures in Israel's past, and they usually claim to contain God's message building upon ideas and narratives of the Old Testament. Now, some of the other well-known pseudepigrapha would include Jubilees, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, Psalms of Solomon, the Apocalypse of Ezra and Barak, and many others. There's a whole lot of pseudepigrapha writings out there. Though Second and Third Enoch also contain material about the Patriarch Enoch and his alleged visions and experience, they don't carry the weight that First Enoch has on ancient Judaism and Christianity. Second Enoch, they're both written much later and are plagued with diverse traditions of manuscript variations. Second Enoch was most likely written in the second century after Christ. Uh, Third Enoch shows evidence of later Jewish mysticism and claims authorship by Rabbi Ishmael relating his visions of Enoch written anywhere from the third to the sixth century. So they're written much later. Eh, they don't carry near the weight as First Enoch, was, which was written, for the most part, they, they think about 300 B.C. Now, the book that traditionally is intended when referring to the book of Enoch is the Ethiopian Enoch, or First Enoch. We said the oldest sections are around 300 B.C., but the only complete manuscript we have is available in an Ethiopic translation from about four to 500 A.D. So we don't have, you know, the more older ones. Now, in discussing the dates of the book of Enoch, and you hear people say, well, it was written here, it was written there, you know, and so here's something you got to understand. 
Very important understanding this. We need to understand that in the culture of the Bible, before there were books and handwritten copies, there was only oral text. That almost sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it, to us? Oral and text. Oral text. Like, for example, Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount was an oral text. There was nobody there writing down, oh, look what he's saying, you know, jotting it all down. They memorized it. And they passed it on. They would have storytellers and they would tell the stories. You know, they would get together and they would listen to it and they would recount it and they would share it with one another. Nobody wrote things down. What Yeshua said was not written down until at least 20 years later. The ancient world of Enoch and Yeshua was hearing dominant rather than text dominant like our culture. We got to have it. If it's not written down, we don't believe it. They were the exact opposite. If it was written down, they didn't want to believe it. Traditions were passed down by word of mouth from generation to generation. So here's my question. Who knows how long Enoch was orally passed down before it was actually written down? All right, they say, you know, 300 B.C. was written down. Okay, that doesn't mean it all of a sudden showed up at 300 B.C. This was an oral tradition that was passed down for a long time. You know, we know that the rabbis of first century Palestine apparently wrote nothing. It wasn't until 200 years after the time of Yeshua that the rabbis began to put their wisdom in written form. Shumel Safari, in the literature of the sages, writes, Rabbinic literature records prohibitions against writing. This is how they viewed text, people. No, no, that's not. You pass it down orally. You don't write stuff down. We don't trust writing. He says, teaching and preaching were supposed to remain oral literary activities. You don't write it down, you pass it down. Now, most people in that culture couldn't read, they couldn't write. So text wouldn't do them any good. It was not necessary in an oral culture. Now, in Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's account, five times Yeshua said this, You have heard that it was said. You heard this, right? But I say unto you. For the most part, they had never seen or read the text of Scripture. You know, people say, oh, the Bereans, they went home and they got their little Bible and they sat there and they searched. The Bereans didn't have Bibles. Well, how did they search the Scripture? They would go to the synagogue where the text would be read and they would debate. Well, well, that text says this. What about that? And they'd go back and forth. And they had so much of this memorized that's how they search it. They would go turn that computer or their brain on and log through there and say, well, over here it says this, over here it says this. How does this all fit together? Most people couldn't read and write. You know, if you're looking at the Scripture, it's only when Yeshua addressed the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Sadducees that He would say, have you not read? They had text. They could read. That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. They could have read the text, but most people couldn't. So my point is that the book of Enoch could go back quite a ways orally. Any of these texts of Scripture, okay? You know, people, they're putting a dating here, a dating there. We don't know how far back the tradition goes. The date and composition of even the, the latest manuscript is not indicative of the true age of the text. This oral tradition, people... I want to suggest to you, could go all the way back to Enoch. Okay? He was a pretty important important figure. I mean, we saw that in the Scripture. 
Alright, he walked with God. He was pleasing to God. He was not. Alright, so... How far back does this go? I don't know. Maybe all the way back to him. So how would it last all that time? Boy, let me tell you, the oral transmission was really good. Okay? And they passed these stories on from one to the next. It was what their life was about. They didn't have computers. They didn't have all these games. They didn't have all this entertainment we had. So what did they do? They would go to the storytelling and they would pass these things down. So how far back does it go? We don't really know. So don't get thrown off by the dates as well. It's only 300 years before the time. No, this thing could go all the way back. And I think probably does. Some of it go back to Enoch himself. All right, through, though the early church fathers and the Ethiopian church has been familiar with the text of Enoch, they were familiar with that. It was really lost to the Western scholarship until its recent discovery in 1800. And I talked about that at the beginning. It just disappeared. You know, the church wasn't familiar with this book at all. First Enoch belongs to the genre of literature called apocalyptic. Apocalypse in Greek simply means revelation or disclosure. John Collins, an expert in apocalyptic literature, defines it as a genre with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world. Yarbo Collins adds a point of clarification to the definition. He says that apocalyptic is intended to interpret present earthly circumstances in light of the supernatural world and of the future and to influence both the understanding and the behavior of the audience by means of divine authority. Now, when we think of apocalyptic literature, we think of the book of Daniel, we think of the book of Revelation. They're considered apocalyptic in their genre because Daniel and John are ushered into heaven and they receive revelations about a coming earthly historical events cloaked in this poetic language to communicate the spiritual and theological meaning behind those events. Now, most scholars believe that the book of Enoch is really five different books that were written in different time periods and redacted together by authors until it became the current version before about 8100. But there's really no manuscript evidence for that theory. That's just a, a thing that people have with nothing to back it up. Because uh, the older versions that we have are book fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls that indicate all five of these texts were actually one text. So what I'm saying is there are five different books subdivided like this in the book of 1st Enoch. All right, you have the book of the watchers, chapters 1 through 36. Then you have the book of the parables, 37 through 71. And the book of the heavenly luminaries, 72 to 82. The book of divine visions, 83 to 90. And the book of the epistle of Enoch, 91 to 105. And there's a few more after that. But uh, they're just kind of appendages. The book of the watchers. This book is most likely predates the Hellenistic period, being completed by the middle of the 3rd century B.C. It's announced as an oracle of judgment by Enoch. You'll see in Enoch and Jude, there's so many similarities. You know, they're both judgments against apostates. It tells a detailed narrative of 200 heavenly watchers who rebel against God in heaven, led by Semyaza and Azazel. These are names of two angels two angel watchers who lead this rebellion. 
that's one thing in the book of Enoch. He, he's naming off all these angels. You know, we got two names in the Bible, but in the book of Enoch, we got a whole bunch of names. He says, they come to earth on Mount Hermon. They mate with human women and produce bloodthirsty hybrid giants as their progeny, leading to the great flood. This is Genesis 6. This is really just like a huge commentary on Genesis 6. It contained details about the watchers, their names, along with occult secrets they reveal to mankind that violate the holy separation of heaven and earth. It describes Enoch's heavenly commission as a prophet and accounts of his cosmic journeys into heaven to proclaim judgment upon the foes of God. Now here's a passage from the book of the Watchers, uh, from 1 Enoch chapter 12. Before these things, Enoch was hidden, and no one of the children of men knew where he was, hidden and where he abode, and what had become of him. That's what we read in Genesis 5. He was not. God took him. Where did he go? No one knew where he went. And his activities had to do with the watchers, and his days were with the holy ones. And I, Enoch, was blessed by the Lord of majesty and the king of ages. And lo, the watchers called me Enoch the scribe, and said to me, Enoch, thou scribe of righteousness, go, declare to the watchers of heaven, who have left the high heaven, the holy eternal place, and have defiled themselves with women. Now, this is just exactly what Jude says, all right? They left their original estate. Um, this is, like you say, a lot of this comes from Jude. Our, our Jude comes from this. And have done to the children as earth do, and have taken unto them wives. Ye have wrought great destruction on the earth, and ye shall have no peace nor forgiveness of sin. So he's talking about the sin of Genesis 6 and the judgment that was going to come upon them because of it. All right, the second book is the book of parables. This appears to be the latest portion of the Enoch text. It dates back to the end of the first century BC. It's a recounting of Enoch's cosmic journey and his vision of judgment upon the fallen angels and their wicked human counterpart. Um, juxtaposed against the elevation of the holy, the righteous, and the elect. It also, um, includes descriptions of astronomical phenomena such as the source of the wind and the rain. Uh, the unique, important contribution of these chapters is the vision of God's throne room that seems to be drawn from the book of Isaiah and the book of Daniel chapter 7 that depicts the Ancient of Days, the heavenly host that surrounds the throne, and the Son of Man as vice-regent, also referred to as the Elect One, the Righteous One, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Scholars point to this book as influential in the development of the doctrine of the Son of Man leading to the New Testament, into the New Testament Gospel. So a lot of the development of Christ as the Son of Man is laid out in the book of Enoch, particularly in the book of parables. Then you have the book of the heavenly luminaries. These are probably the earliest of the Enochian texts with roots in the Persian period between 500 and 300 B.C. It describes Uriel, the angel, showing Enoch the astronomical, cosmological, and calendar laws that verify the authority of the solar calendar. Then you have the book of dream visions. Enoch recounts two dreams that he saw to his son. He's, given, he's explaining these dreams to his son before his son gets married. All right. Um, the first dream is a brief warning about the coming flood. The second dream is a complex allegory using animals to represent the history of the world from Adam to the Hellenistic period they were in with a projection into the future judgment. The date for this book is around 165 B.C., the time of the Maccabean Revolt. So it, it, that's, there's some interesting stuff in that. 
Then we have the book of the Epistle of Enoch, uh, composed somewhere in the second century BC. This document records Enoch's exhortation to the children to remain righteous in the wicked generation. He predicts woes of suffering, shame, misery, and judgment for the wicked who are rich, oppress the righteous, and worship idols. He predicts judgment, comfort, eternal life, and glorification like the stars who remain pure. Now, as I said, there's also some additional books from chapters 106 on. Uh, These are pieces like appendages added to the book of Enoch as additional chapters. Uh, Two chapters detail the miraculous birth narrative of Noah. This is some interesting stuff. It says, the infant Noah's face and his hair are said to glow white. So his father Lamech is frightened by that because he thinks he might be an offspring of a watcher. All right, but he is reassured by Enoch that this is not the case, but rather that Noah is pure and holy, called to be God's remnant. And then one chapter, 108, is an additional exhortation by Enoch to Methuselah of the judgment that's going to come in the latter days. So lastly, uh, there's the Book of the Giants attached to this Book of Enoch. And until the 1950s, the Book of the Giants was only known as um, part of the Gnostic text from the late 3rd century A.D., but the discoveries of the Dead Sea Scroll, and we learned so much when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, A lot of views changed when those were found at Qumran in the 1950s. They uncovered fragments of the original Book of the Giants in Aramaic from the 2nd century, and so they're saying, okay, this is actually part of the book. It was there. It wasn't, you know, uh, the Manichaean Gnostics added some stuff to it, but they had original texts that dated back there. All right. So what did the ancient Jews before Christ and even the Christians after him think about this book of Enoch? What what part did this play in their lives? Well, though claims have been made for the conicity of 1st Enoch by some church fathers, it wasn't considered to be scripture by any of the ancient traditions. All right, the traditional 39 books that we now call the Old Testament were referred to in the New Testament and other second temple literature as the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. We see that designation in Luke 24, 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written by me about me in the Law of Moses, in the Prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So there is no manuscript or historical evidence that First Enoch was ever part of this traditional threefold designation. The earliest manuscript we have of canonical writings of the Tanakh are from 400 to 300 B.C. from the library of Qumran. All right, And so this has not been part of it. Buckham points out, the Enoch literature and other apocryphal works at Qumran were evidently valued as literary works by the Essene community, but were not included in their canon of Scripture. So at Qumran, they were important. Enoch was an important text. But he said they didn't consider scripture, so it really wasn't part of considered part of the Tanakh. It wasn't considered as scripture by the Essenes. Now the Hebrew Masoretic texts that were compiled between 8500 and 900 by Jewish scribes, they're considered by both Christians and Jews to be one of the most authoritative set of manuscripts reflecting the ancient Jewish canon. First Enoch was never a part of this set. The only manuscript collection that does include First Enoch as canonical is the Ethiopic canon of the Coptic Church. But this designation was only solidified in the 13th century A.D. 
So it doesn't really hold that much weight. So none of the original canons, none of the original thinking really put it in the canon of Scripture. So even though the canon of the Tanakh never included First Enoch as the Watcher's giant storyline was quoted as spiritually authoritative and other significant Second Temple literature, such as the wisdom of Yeshua ben Sira, uh, Genesis Apocryphon, wisdom of Solomon, Philo of Alexander, Josephus, Second Third Enoch, the life of Adam and Eve, and the well-known, some of the Targum, they quote this. They quote Enoch. They use him. The Book of Jubilees, a highly regarded Jewish text written sometime in the second century, draws explicitly from First Enoch as Scripture under the claim that Enoch had received his vision from the angels of God, Jubilees 4, 17-22. Now, Enoch translator, E. Isaac, he writes this, First Enoch played a significant role in the early church. It was used by the authors of the Epistle of Barnabas, the Apocalypse of Peter, and a number of apologetic works. Many church fathers, including Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Origen, and Clement of Alexander, either knew First Enoch or were inspired by it. Among those who were familiar with First Enoch, Tertullian had an exceptionally high regard for it. Now, the Epistle of Barnabas, uh, Young Origen, Clement of Alexander, Tertullian, all considered First Enoch to be Scripture. I mean, these men thought this was equal, on par with the canon. Tertullian wrote, in concerning the genesis of the prophecy of Enoch, I am aware that the scripture of Enoch, so notice he calls it scripture, which has assigned this order of action to angels, is not received by some, because it is not admitted into the Jewish canon. So he said the Jewish canon didn't have this, so some people don't think it's part of scripture. But since Enoch is the same scripture, as preached likewise concerning the Lord, nothing at all must be rejected by us which pertains to us, and we read that every scripture suitable for edification is divinely inspired. To these considerations is added the fact that Enoch possessed a testimony in the book of Jude. So he says, you know, all right, they didn't, the, the, you know, the Jewish canon didn't accept this, it wasn't part of it, but we do see it in Jude. And Jude uses it, so he viewed it as scripture. Now, Church Father Justin Martyr quotes First Enoch's angels mating with women and their revelation of occultic arts to humans as an apologetic argument explaining the true origin of God's mating with women in pagan mythologies. Now, I think he's on to something here because I think a lot of the mythologies that we have, the Titans and all this stuff, and this, all this different Greek mythology, I think comes out of truth. You know, I think this is goes back to the Genesis 6 story, and a lot of this comes out of that. And, you know, people think, well, that's just crazy. That's just myth. That's legend. Ah, I think there might be something to it. I think Justin Martyr is on to something when he said that those myths come out of reality. All right, Isaac includes the start <clears throat> the, that starting in the 4th century, Enoch fell into disfavor in the West with negative reviews of influential theologians like Julius Africanus, Augustine really stood against it. Said, no, it's not scripture. We don't even need this. Let's get rid of it. Hillary, Jerome. He then explains that it was, um, was the medieval mind that regulated first Enoch to virtual oblivion outside of Ethiopia before it was resurrected in 1773 by the discovery of Scottish explorer James Bruce, who returned to Europe with several manuscripts of the Ethiopic uh, Enoch. 
So, though the book of First Enoch is not considered Scripture, this doesn't invalidate its claims to accuracy or reliable spiritual information. Okay, just say because you say, well, that's not Scripture. It doesn't mean it doesn't have a lot of stuff to say to us. It doesn't mean that there's not some accurate things in there, that there's not truth in there. Obviously, Jude thought there was truth in there because he quotes it. All right? Orthodox Christian believers maintain that only the Tanakh and the New Testament are God-breathed or inspired words of God. That is, they're the sole infallible authority of God's revelation to humankind. But in our desire to affirm the absolute canonical truth value of God's word, we too often, I think, dismiss the contingent truth value of non-canonical works. There's still truth in them. Okay, We don't have to say they're inspired. We don't have to say they're part of the word of God to realize that there's truth in there that can help us in our understanding. I think it may surprise those who hold a, a high view of Scripture that some of the New Testament writers use the book of Enoch as source material. It's important to understand that um, the admitted use of non-canonical sources by writers of the Scripture was an all-too-common activity of God. A lot of them quoted other things. You know, there are over 50 references in the Scripture to just over 20 non-canonical source texts used by biblical authors that are lost to history. These are non-biblical sources that the writers of Scripture actually mention as being sources of information for their writing of Scripture. So I don't think we can afford to dismiss influential non-canonical texts as irrelevant or unworthy of our studious respect and investigation, especially those who proclaim sola scriptura, since the scriptures themselves grant explicit respect to these sources by quoting them. Unfortunately, of all the sources that the Bible quotes, they're all lost to us except for one, and that's First Enoch. It's quoted directly in the epistle of Jude. Now, it probably wasn't even two years ago that I had nothing to do with pseudepigraphal writings. I didn't care about them. I thought they were worthless. I thought they were of no account. And then I did some research and my views changed, okay? And I realized now, you know, I'm still someone who likes to stick with the text of Scripture. And a message like this is even hard for me to do because I'm spending so much time talking about something that's not actually Scripture. But I think there is value in this. And because Jude quotes it, we got to talk about it and bring it out. But, I, you know, I've learned that uh, I think there's a lot that these pseudepigraphal writings have to offer us. They give us the mindset of the people of that culture, you know, which is so important. They teach us about the culture of the Bible, you know, and that's important when you're reading the Bible because it helps you understand the text you're reading. Isaac writes this, he says, There is little doubt that First Enoch was influential in molding New Testament doctrines concerning the nature of Messiah, the Son of Man, the Messianic Kingdom, demonology, the future, resurrection, final judgment, the whole eschatological theater, and symbolism. No wonder, therefore, that the book was highly regarded by many of the earliest apostolic and church fathers. All right, It was, it was very highly regarded. R.H. Charles, one of the earliest experts on Pseudepigrapha and Enoch, listed about 60 examples where the language of the New Testament reflected possible Enochian influence. 60 different examples throughout the Scripture. He concluded, First Enoch has had more influence on the New Testament than has any other Apocrypha or Pseudepigrapha work. 
Now, Charles points out that the notions of Sheol, resurrection, demonology, future life, that are barely mentioned in the Old Testament, are expanded upon in First Enoch in a way that corresponds to the New Testament usage of the terms. So this is before the New Testament's written, but in this intertestamental literature here, we get these ideas developed and then further into the New Testament that uses them. The strongest case for New Testament literary dependence upon Enoch text are the epistles of Jude, First and Second Peter. I think we're all aware of that. We've been talking about that. All three of these passages, Jude, First Peter, Second Peter, the most explicit comes from Jude, where the apostle literally quotes First Enoch when he writes Jude 14 and 15. Now, we read this earlier, but I want, to, I want you to listen to this text, and then I'm going to read it from Enoch, and I want, you can obviously see um, the similarities there. Remember, Jude is written, you know, probably almost 400 years after Enoch was. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So first, he talks about judgment. The Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. Then he goes into this ungodly, ungodly, and he uses it four times, all right? Well, then in Enoch, First Enoch 1.9, it says, Behold, he cometh with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. There we go. There's the judgment theme. And to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken. And he happens to use ungodly four times himself. I mean, the text, it's the same text, people. Jude is quoting verbatim from Enoch. Now, the thing is, though, Jude doesn't just quote one verse from Enoch. He also follows the content patterns from First Enoch along with the allusions and the echo, echoes in its phrases and language throughout its epistle. Jude's greeting reflects the same exact greeting as First Enoch in appealing to the preservation of the elect, followed by God's mercy or kindness and the multiplication of blessing. reads the same way. Jude also echoes First Enoch in primary apocalyptic theme about punishment of the ungodly. They're both talking about that same thing. Both texts are addressing the evil of their day as an unveiling or fulfillment of the past prophetic proclamation. They both appeal to ancient examples of judgment as promised upon the judgment of the present ungodly. Carol Osborne concludes that Jude must have used Enoch 82-8 as the essential framework for Jude's metaphorical construction because Jude warns of the impending punishment of the ungodly, and then follows the precise order of Enoch's description of them as first waterless clouds, Jude 12, Enoch 80, second unfruitful trees, Jude 12, first Enoch, Enoch 80, fourth wandering stars, Jude 13, uh, first Enoch 80 again, and he, then he says the third metaphor of turbulent water being found in first Enoch 67. So all these things are coming right directly uses the same uh, allusions, the same illustrations. First Enoch is a fascinating ancient manuscript with a long historical pedigree of value and respect within Judaism and Christianity. I mean, you know, this again, as we said earlier, was lost for hundreds of years. No one even heard of it. No one even knew of it. But, but you go back and the Judaism, this was a very important document to them. The early Christians, it was important to them. 
It's the only known source text explicitly attributed in Scripture that we possess with some manuscript certainty. The only one we have. It provides a helpful look into Second Temple Judaism and the development of intertestamental interpretations that have influenced the New Testament doctrines of Messiah and His Kingdom, the Son of Man, demons, resurrection, final judgment, and other eschatological imagery. John Walton writes, Every aspect of the regular operation of the world as described in the Bible reflects the perspective and ideas of the ancient world. So if you want to understand the Bible, you've got to understand what their world was like. Ideas that Israel, along with everyone else in the ancient world, already believed. So if that's true, and I believe it is, the better we understand the literature of the Second Temple period, the better we understand the thinking of the Jews of that day. The evidence shows that not only does the New Testament letter of Jude quote directly from First Enoch, the book of the Watchers, but the entire letter in its alternate version in Second Peter shows signs of literary and theological dependence on the rest of the book of the Watchers, as well as chapter 80, the book of Luminaries, chapter 46, the book of the Parables, chapter 100, the book of Enoch, the Epistle of Enoch, and Second Peter shows evidence of structural and thematic dependency on First Enoch 17 through 22 and 108 in the additional book. So we see Peter very heavily relying on Enoch, Jude very heavily relying on Enoch. So is Enoch scripture? My answer is no. All right, I don't think it is scripture. Even though some of the church fathers, such as Origen. Clement, Tertullian, they saw it as Scripture. They believed it was. It was never part of the Tanakh. It was never part of the Masoretic text. And it wasn't part of the text of Scripture at Qumran. But the fact is, the entire New Testament shows it as a multitude of allusions and linguistic echoes that enter into the Scriptures from First Enoch. So I think we can safely say the book and its basic interpretations, though not Scripture are surely worthy of study and high regard by the church. It is extremely helpful source material. It is an excellent commentary on many verses of Scripture. A commentary that comes back out of that culture. It shows us how the Jews of Yeshua's day thought. And therefore gives us excellent commentary. Now next week we're going to begin to look at Jude verses 12 through 15. And see, you know, these descriptions that Enoch uses, that Jude follows along with. And then uh, look at the quote and, and go on from there. But I know that, like I said, this is a little bit out of the ordinary. We're basically just talking about a book that we're saying is not Scripture, but yet is very, very influential. And the thing is, people, if Scripture is quoting this book, then I think we ought to know something about it. And since it is available... now. If you take the time to read the book of Enoch, you're going to be amazed. It's got some really interesting stuff in there. But to me, it answers some interesting questions. It really does. You know, there's so much discrepancy today. If you study history and you look at the pyramids or Easter Isle, a lot of these different things, and you say, how did the people of that day do those? How did they make the pyramids? They say there's, those blocks are so perfectly fit you can't put a piece of paper in between them. They say, whether it's true or not, they say that with our technology and our machinery today, we cannot duplicate the pyramids. So how did they do that? And so people come up with the theory, aliens. Ancient aliens came down and taught them. Well, you know what the book of Enoch says? The watchers came down and taught men. 
And I'm like, now that makes sense. Okay? That makes sense. Because somehow these things got there. How did, how did men have all this wonderful technology and this, all this insight? Now we're like, got dumb. You know, we think we're advancing. But you look backwards, you know, it's not like, well, there's not some, <laughs> that's not really advanced at that point yet. So, but it, I think it answers some interesting questions. So I do, I took a stand that people, it is not scripture. Uh, I think it is very valuable in our understanding of Scripture, and therefore it's a very valuable book. And because it's out now, it's easy to get our hands on. You can get it online, you can get it for free online, download it, look at it. Like I said, you'll, you'll find some interesting things, and you'll see how much Scripture relies on it as you read through it and see what's there. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at this strange little book of Enoch, Lord. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all you've given us in the day and age in which we live to help us better understand Scripture. Lord, I pray we'd avail ourselves to those things, that we would desire to know your word, to understand the culture, the setting, the history, and thus truly interpret accurately your word. Thank you for these helps, Lord. May we avail ourselves to them. Amen.